We are in Exodus chapter 11. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. Tonight we're going to be looking at Christ, the Passover lamb. So let's pray together. Father, as it's the middle of the week, we come before you and we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're the alpha and the omega. You're the consuming fire. And as we get into your word tonight, we see that it has always been in your heart that your son would be the Passover lamb. And we thank you that judgment has passed over us because of your blood, Jesus. So God, would you open up our hearts? Would you open up our ears? Are we also give to you our concerns, those things that are weighing us down, we place those at your feet. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. As we've been traveling through Exodus, we see Pharaoh hardening his heart to God's command, let my people go. God sends plague after plague after plague. There's been nine plagues, and each plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart. God knew that it was going to go down this way. And what we see is God is delivering his people in a very specific way to do three things. And the first is to show Israel his power. God could have delivered Israel from the Egyptians simply by speaking a word, simply by snapping a finger, but instead there's this process that they go through. And many times in our lives, don't we wish for deliverance to happen a lot quicker? for the work of God to be much faster, but God does it on his timetable to show us and to reveal his glory to us. God's also showing himself to the Egyptians through Pharaoh's hard heart. And this last plague is gonna be the death of the firstborn. And in this, the Passover lamb is instituted for the children of Israel, where judgment passes over their homes. And this is probably one of the clearest portraits of Christ in the Old Testament. It's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. Isn't that true? You can think about Estes Park, and you can try to describe Estes Park to someone who's never seen it, Rocky Mountain National Park. Imagine getting on a plane and going to Uganda and trying to explain to someone who's lived close to the equator what the Rocky Mountains are like, what snow is like. But if you show them a video, it's so much easier for them to understand the glory of the Rocky Mountains and the changing of colors and and the elk and all those type of things. And God, in the Old Testament, he gives us pictures of New Testament principles. So we have this New Testament principle, this truth that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the picture of that, the portrait of that, is in great detail in the Passover. So we're going to study this portrait tonight. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. This is going to be it. This plague is going to take place, and this is going to result in the deliverance of the children of Israel. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask for his neighbor, and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver, articles of gold, and the Lord gave the people favor in sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. 
deliverance is getting close, so go to your neighbors and ask for some bling bling. That's the message of God here. He says, it's time to go to the neighbors and ask for some monetary gifts. And God gives favor, and it's his way of providing for the children of Israel as they're delivered. Moses was afraid, wasn't he, to step into Egypt because of his past failures to confront Pharaoh. But God has made Moses great. Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, they fear Moses. Think of it this way. For over 400 years, the children of Israel have been slaves with no wages. (laughs) So this is God's way of saying, hey, they're going to get some of their wages back. Go to your neighbors and ask for the gold and ask for the silver. And the amazing thing is, is they're willing to do it. This is not the normal protocol with slaves. That slaves would ask for gold and silver and the slave owners would say, yeah, I'm going to give to you my gold and I'm going to give to you my silver. And when God gives favor, you really can't put a price tag on that. Have you ever looked at different times in your life and you're like, man, there's no explanation here other than God gave me favor. You know, God gave me favor with this boss or with this person and has allowed this to take place in my life. Verse four, then Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of female servants, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. In Exodus 4, verse 22, God says that Israel is his firstborn. And Egypt has enslaved his firstborn. So it's only fitting that they would lose their firstborn. And isn't there something special about your firstborn? There's, there's something amazingly special about each child that the Lord grants to you and gives to you. But if you've got two or three kids, you know that the second rodeo is a little bit easier than the first, right? As a first-time parent, when they let you bring your child home. You're like, are you sure? You just, you're just going to let me take this, this child home, right? Doesn't it come with some kind of manual or detailed instructions? I mean, you can't even put together Christmas toys without a lot of detailed instructions, let alone here's this beautiful, amazing child, and, and, and I'm responsible. Like, I've, I've never done this before, right? And there's something vivid about your firstborn because it's the first time you've experienced everything. It's the first time you've experienced birth. It's, it's the first time that they're one years old. You've never experienced any of your kids turning one years old. And you can remember the, the high chair and the cake on the, on the high chair, right? And it's special with all of the kids, but, but it's the very first, right? And so God says, Israel's my firstborn. And so here's Pharaoh, and he's hardening his heart to God's command, and it results in this great loss, the loss of the firstborn, and it's throughout all of Egyptian society, even with the animals, every, everywhere through, and that's what's going to finally be what breaks Pharaoh's heart to let the children of Israel go. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So this is going to affect the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. 
And in fact, a dog is not even going to be able to hurt an Israelite. A dog's not even going to be able to move his tongue against the Israelites because God is going to protect them. God's going to show that he knows the difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, Get out and all of the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So Moses says, your servants are going to come and they're going to beg me to get the children of Israel and to get out. And from this point, then Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence. And it says that Moses was angry. I wonder if Moses' heart was like, it didn't have to come to this. You could have let the children of Israel go before there was any plagues. Or maybe after plague one. Or when you got to the lice, you could have said, that, that's enough. But instead, it's come to you to this point. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh's going to continue to have a hard heart until this last plague of the firstborn. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. So we see this taking place throughout this part of the book of Exodus where Pharaoh is hardening his heart and God is confirming Pharaoh's decision. God is affirming the hard heart of Pharaoh. And we get into chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So when God delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt on Passover, this is their new year. This is, becomes their first month of the year. Don't you like that? God's deliverance sets a new timetable in their lives. And God's deliverance sets a new timetable in our lives as well. There's that physical birth that we had, but then there's a spiritual birth when we became God's child. And didn't the calendar restart at that point? You go, man, I remember when God got a hold of my life. I remember when I became a Christian. I remember when I got delivered from the bondage of sin. So Israel's calendar to this day was reset based upon the Passover. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. So every year on the 10th day of this month, they're to go find a lamb and prepare it for Passover. And the nation of Israel celebrates Passover to this day. They, they look back at, at the Passover feast. Why a lamb? We see first Abel making the sacrifice of a lamb for his sin. It was a lamb for a man. And then we see here a lamb for a family. It's You take a lamb and kill this lamb for your whole entire family. Then later on, we'll see that there's a lamb for the whole entire nation, the Day of Atonement. So God is showing us a pattern that leads to Jesus. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So a lamb for a man, a lamb for a family, a lamb for a nation, and then a lamb for the whole entire world. And this is what blows me away is because this is the heart of God and the plan of God that Jesus would come as a lamb to the slaughter, fulfilling the Passover lamb. I mean, we sang it tonight in worship. The lamb has overcome. 
You know, a lamb is innocent, a lamb is cute, a lamb is cuddly, but you don't think of a lamb as conquering. And Jesus comes in humility. He comes as a lamb in complete perfection and innocence in order to provide our redemption. That could only be the plan of God. You know, if I'm thinking of salvation, deliverance, redemption, I'm thinking a lion, and Jesus is the lion. And his second coming, he comes as the roaring lion. But the first coming, he comes as the lamb, as the suffering servant who silently went to the cross to have his blood shed so that we could receive forgiveness. So it was always in the heart of God that it would be a lamb for sin, that a lamb would be the one who is crucified in order for us to have forgiveness. So on the 10th day, go find your lamb. In verse 4, and if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the person, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So if your neighbor was not able to have a lamb, make sure your neighbor is, is provided for. And this lamb had to be a lamb without blemish. You had to go and find the perfect lamb to be sacrificed because Jesus is without blemish. We know when Christ was put on trial that they said he's without fault. He's perfect. There's no blemish in Christ. And what's amazing about the Passover feast is when Jesus came into Jerusalem, and spent four days in Jerusalem leading up to his crucifixion, it was the 10th of the first month. And he was the lamb who was being inspected by the priests, and there was no fault that was found in Jesus. And then Christ was crucified on Passover. In verse 6, Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So why... Go get the lamb four days prior to it being killed for this feast. There's some bonding that would have to take place in these four days, don't you think? Especially with kids. You try bringing a lamb home for four days and see what happens. Every household has to have a lamb. You might not have been a shepherd. That might not have been your thing. But if you were of the children of Israel, you had to have a lamb. And you had to have it picked out on the 10th day and it wasn't going to be killed until the 14th day because all of this points to Jesus. And when we really understand Christ's sacrifice upon the cross, there's an attachment that takes place with Christ. There's an understanding of his innocence. I'm imagining the kids going like, well, what did the lamb do wrong? Right? Like, why, why are we having to kill the lamb? This doesn't make, make any sense. Like, we, we have plenty of food here. This isn't a a food issue. Like God told you to go kill this lamb? I I, I don't get this. This this lamb is innocent. It hasn't done anything wrong. And then to begin to talk about this judgment that we deserve. And the blood of this lamb as it's put upon the doorpost is going to cause judgment to pass over. It points to the innocence of Christ. It points to Jesus being that sacrificial lamb for us. Fourteenth day shall be kept until the fourteenth day. Verse seven, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house 
where they eat. So the blood needed to be applied upon the doorposts. And this is interesting. I mean, what if you kind of got halfway through this process and you picked out the lamb, then you're like, this is a little too gruesome for me. Like it's, I know it's Halloween and everything, but do we need to be talking about all this and October? And I just, I just can't do it. You know, I just can't kill, I can't kill the lamb. Or maybe you got a little farther and you killed the lamb, but you're like, really blood on the doorposts? I mean, what kind of God is this? I'm not going to, I'm not going to put blood on the doorposts and scare my kids. You know, then you're going to receive this plague of the death of the firstborn. In order for the plague to pass over you, the blood had to be applied to the door. And again, God is doing this specifically on a purpose because the picture, we're studying this portrait of Jesus, is it's not enough to simply know about the blood of Jesus, right? It's not enough to simply come to a church. It's not enough to sit through a Bible study. It has to be personal where we apply the blood of the lamb to our lives, to the door of our hearts. What do I mean? Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and sup with him. But we have to respond through faith and apply it to our lives and go, Jesus died for me. I believe that he died and rose again. The blood of Jesus is, is, is for me and applying it to our hearts and our lives. In verse eight, then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So very specifically, they're to eat all of it that night. There wasn't to be leftovers. It was to be cooked specifically roasted in a fire, pointing to Jesus in the fire that he went through on the cross, the torture that he went on the cross. Why unleavened bread, flat bread? This was a symbol throughout scripture when there's no leaven in the bread of purity. It's the lack of sin in our lives. The yeast is an example of sin. And Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, he's the one who's able to purify us. So every piece of this is symbolic. Every piece of this is important with the the bitter herbs pointing to the brutal death in which Christ would die. Do not eat it raw nor boil it at all with water, but roast it in a fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. All of Christ should be applied to our lives. This this whole lamb was to be consumed. There was to be no leftovers. I really like verse 11. This is worth underlining, meditating on. And thus you shall eat with a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. God says you better be dressed when you're having the Passover. You better have your sandals on. You better be ready to go because why? Deliverance is coming. You guys aren't gonna be slaves much longer. I know you've been slaves for 400 years, but this Passover is gonna bring deliverance, so you better be packed and ready to go. And when we take communion, which is the fulfillment of Passover, we need to take it with our shoes on. Not necessarily literally, but the attitude of our hearts is, I am ready to apply the blood of Jesus to my life. I'm anticipating deliverance. I'm doing this in faith. I'm doing this in expectation. It's not just a ritual, but I'm believing 
that the Lord is working in my life and I'm ready to step into the deliverance that he has already provided. Last week, at the end of the week, at our pastoral getaway with just the pastors from our church as we took time to be together and be encouraged and and seek the Lord, one of the things that we were talking about is having faith and expectation in our relationship with the Lord. And sometimes a rut can get a hold of us in our relationship with God where we really don't have faith and expectation that he's going to meet with us and work in our lives. We first talked about, you know, not all ruts are bad because some ruts are really good. The Oregon Trail, for instance, I grew up in Oregon, so I was a little bit fascinated with the Oregon Trail. My great-grandma came across on the Oregon Trail, so I heard stories from her She lived to be 101 years old. So she got saved when she was 99, 99 years old. But the Oregon Trail, they estimate that 300,000 people traveled across on the Oregon Trail over 25 years. There's a place just up in Wyoming where they have ruts that you can still go and look at today over this sandstone ridge. And the ruts are 5, 10, 15 feet deep from all of these wagons going through. And what happened is people going over the same path created a highway for those coming behind them. So you can imagine you're the first group of pioneers with no ruts. It's a very difficult trip. But then by about, you know, year 20, and you're on the very end of this, you're like, this is amazing. I'm so thankful for those that have gone before me. So doing something over and over and over again is not necessarily bad, but It's the attitude in which we do it. So if we're in a place where we're thoughtless, passionless, and we're not expecting God to work, then it becomes a negative rut. But if we're in a place of expectation, then it can be a positive thing. And so when God gives the children of Israel the Passover, he says, I want you to do it with expectation. And in our relationship with God, are we kind of in this mindless rut a bit? We're reading the scriptures, but like, I don't really expect God to speak to me. It goes a little bit into Charlie Brown mode. Wah, 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 wah. I did my daily devotions, right? It's Wednesday night. Oh, man. I'm so tired, right? And it's easy to get into that place where, okay, I, I'm going to work, but I don't really expect God to move. I'm doing my best to raise my kids, but I don't really expect God, God to move. And I think God would say to us, you know what? Take communion with your shoes on. Like get expectant about the fact that I'm gonna work in, in your life. And the reason that we can be expectant is not because of who we are, but what we celebrate in the Passover, what we celebrate in the communion, Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, his faithfulness and his grace. So we go, Lord, as I hit the pavement tomorrow because of who you are, I trust that you're going to work. I trust that you're going to be with me. Let's go on to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So God is going to humble all of these false gods. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house and the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What separates the children of Israel from the Egyptians? One thing, 
the blood of the lamb. It's the only thing that separates them. Did God deliver the Israelites because they deserved it? Because they were better than the Egyptians? No, because of his grace. His grace expressed through the blood of the lamb. What's different between us and someone who doesn't know Christ as their savior? One thing, the blood of Jesus applied to our heart and our life. And the moment that they apply the blood of Jesus to their heart and life, they pass from God's judgment to God's grace. Why does God allow us into heaven, into eternal life? One reason, the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what separates us, is the blood of Jesus Christ. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast, even by an everlasting ordinance. So the Passover to be that continual memorial of God's faithfulness. The nation of Israel continuing to remember God's faithfulness through the Passover. In verse 15, now there's this instruction into the Feast of Eleven Bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Maybe God was giving us an indication of being gluten-free a long time ago, right? And on the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That's very serious. God's like, if you don't keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, like, peace out. You're done. You're no longer a part of the nation of Israel. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which every man must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you may observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day... I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this ordinance throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. What I love about this is the Passover, the death of the innocent lamb, brings them into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what do we have in Christ? Christ's body is broken for us so that we're made whole. Jesus is the true unleavened bread. He is the one without sin, without yeast. Yeast is a, is a picture of sin. And it's only the blood of Jesus that can cleanse us of sin. In my mind, you'd almost think that the Feast of Unleavened Bread would become first, symbolizing having a life absent of sin. But God knows that we can't do that apart from the blood of Jesus. So it's the blood of Jesus that purifies us. The Feast of Passover is before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover being one day then leads right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there's three feasts right here that are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's the Feast of Passover, and then three days later, you have the Feast of First Fruits. Christ rose from the dead on Feast of First Fruits. And then all of this is in the midst of the feast of unleavened bread. Christ is the one who's pure, who purifies us. So when Jesus died on Passover and rose again on the feast of first fruits, like he is yelling to the nation of Israel, I'm the Messiah, right? And us being Gentile believers, we're like, feast of Passover, feast of unleavened bread, feast of first fruits. But you've got hundreds of years 
thousands of years of them celebrating these feasts and then Christ is crucified and risen on the fulfillment of these feasts. It's amazing. Christ is pictured so clearly here for us. So verse 18, in the first month on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your house since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation, whether he's a stranger or native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. God in his wisdom says you can't even have it in the house, right? Because bread with yeast in it is very good. You're looking at it over there. I'm not going to eat you. I'm not going to eat you. But your Rudy's organic bread from Costco, right? Say, oh. And so God's like, don't even have it in the house. Like just me and ice cream do a lot better when ice cream's not in the house. You know what I'm saying? You guys can't relate, can you? So. <laughs> Verse 21, then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourself according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be done when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the house of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So this was to be a memorial to do every year, even when they got into the promised land, a way of teaching their children The fulfillment of this is communion. Communion is a memorial. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You know, we had a newcomer's lunch uh, probably two weeks ago, and families come to newcomer's lunch, and a kid raises his hand, you know, and I love it when kids have questions. And he, he says, what's communion? Right, he wanted to know what communion meant and represented. And, you know, of all the questions that we get at church, one of the most questions we get from kids is about communion. You know, they're really, really intrigued. Like, what's the cracker and what's the juice and why would you do this? And then inevitably in the heart and mind of the kid is, well, can I have more juice? Right? It's like, why do I, if we just have one little cup and there's, there's a bunch of cups in there that nobody's called. Can I, can I have the rest? Right? You know? And I think communion is a great way for us to share Christ with, with our kids you know, to have communion in the home and explain it with the kids or bring your kids here in the sanctuary. You know, they're in, they're in children's ministry right now. You can get them and, and come back in and say, hey, let's, let's take communion together. But as, it's a great way to teach them so they understand what Christ has, has done for them. And you as a parent can decide what's the appropriate age uh, for them to be able to enter into to communion. Verse 29, it came to pass 
at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all the servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. Can't even begin to put into words the sorrow here. I mean, you can imagine it's the middle of the night and moms and dads are starting to become aware that their, their firstborn had passed away. They go out to the barn and the firstborn of their animals has passed away. Pharaoh discovers his, his firstborn is, has passed away. What stands out to me is we, we see the destruction of a hard heart. You know, Pharaoh had a hard heart against God. And Pharaoh was in the position where he could have prevented this by heeding the word of God and he, heeding the command of God. And it's sobering for us to go, man, my hard heart. If I'm developing a hard heart towards the Lord and what he's asked me to do, that's going to affect people. It's going to affect those that I love the most and the destruction that comes from Pharaoh's hard heart. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night. He didn't even wait till morning and said, Rise, go out from my people, both you and the children of Israel. Arise, go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. He says, Guys, I want you to go. It's time. You can leave. He's finally broken. He finally surrenders. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. The Egyptians were like, yeah, get them out of here. There's been enough destruction. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having kneaded the bulls bound up in their clothes and on their shoulders. So they're in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The, the Passover has just taken place that night on the 14th, which was to lead right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they're starting off their travel of deliverance, celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now the children of Israel had gone according to the word of Moses, and they also asked for the Egyptian articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they granted them what they'd requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So they had done what Moses had asked, and they had gotten a lot of silver and gold. And so now they're leaving with all of these provisions. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. And mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds a great deal of livestock. So 600,000 men, that doesn't include wives, and it doesn't include children. A very low estimate is over a million. Some have estimated as much up to three million people. At the end of Genesis, we see Jacob coming to Egypt with his sons and their children, and they're a relatively small group. But now, in this 400 year, 30 years that they're in bondage, they're a nation, God had birthed a nation while they're there in the midst of, of bondage. There are mixed multitude, meaning that there was some 
Egyptians that traveled with them, people from other countries that traveled with them. So you've got this mass amount of people with their livestock and with their possessions now traveling in the wilderness from Egypt, journeying to the promised land. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now, the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. 430 years. If I'm the Israelites, I'm going, man, this sure took a long time. A long time. Generations of being slaves to the Egyptians. And I think many times this is how we feel about God's deliverance in our lives. Like, this... This trial has lasted a little too long. This difficulty has lasted a little bit too long. But the, God delivers in his timing and not ours. And it came to the pass at the end of 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. I wonder if they saw themselves as the armies of the Lord. God described them as the armies of the Lord. It is a night of solemn observation to the Lord for bringing them up out of the land of Egypt. This is the night of the Lord, a solemn observation for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. So they're to remember this night of deliverance, the deliverance coming through the blood of the Lamb. The taskmaster for us, the Pharaoh for us, is our sin, isn't it? That's what we're in bondage to. But the blood of the Lamb has delivered us out of bondage. And we're to remember that. We're to hold on to the deliverance that God has brought through the death of his son. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one's house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. So the lamb, in order to enter into the Passover, you had to be circumcised. And then the lamb wasn't to be taken out of the house, nor the bones of the lamb to be broken. We see Jesus being crucified, and not one of his bones were broken. The soldiers came to the cross, and they were ready to break his legs, and they realized that Christ had already died, so they didn't break his legs. And the Gospels tell us this was a fulfillment of Scripture. Why? Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. Do you see how detailed this is? God, when he's writing this, could have just left this out. Like, do whatever you want with the bones. Don't worry about the bones. It's okay if you break, break the bones. But he said, not one of the bones shall be broken. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord... Let all of his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. So if you wanted to celebrate in the Passover, you had to be circumcised. One law shall be for the native born, and one for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all of the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. So this is where we pause and we stop in our, 
our Bible study tonight. And the big takeaway and the big understanding is, man, just look at this picture. Look at this portrait. Look at this video, if, if you would, of, of God painting this picture of saying, my son is the Passover lamb. And as you have applied the blood of Jesus, hopefully to the door of your heart and your life, judgment has passed over. I think a lot of us in our relationship with the Lord, even as Christians, we live in condemnation instead of rejoicing in forgiveness. We go, I don't, I don't really know if judgment has passed over. I don't know if God has really forgiven me. Maybe the Lord's kind of secretly mad at me. Maybe the Father's looking down at me and saying, why can't you get your act together? Why do you keep messing up in, in this area? But you know, it wasn't based on what was going on in the family that caused judgment to pass over. I wonder if there were some families that were fighting during the Passover feast. You're, you're, you're talking about kids. I'm sure it's highly possible, right? Maybe some cranky parents uh, taking place. Do you think maybe there were some husbands and wives that were fighting, right? Do you think maybe that there were some that were maybe doubting a little bit? Like, okay, I'm going to put the blood on the door, but I don't know what, what's going to take place. And what did God say? When I come to the house, if there's blood on the door, I'm going to pass over, right? Because it's the value of the sacrifice. And so the reason that we're not in condemnation doesn't have anything to do with us. For there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's based on our faith in Jesus. And as we trusted him for salvation, the scripture declares we're justified. We're declared righteous by God. You're not living under the judgment of God. I'm not living under the judgment of God. We're living under his grace. We're living under his acceptance. And as we come and take communion tonight to really celebrate the sacrifice of Christ, to do this in remembrance of him and say, Jesus, thank you for your broken body that makes me whole. Thank you for your shed blood that makes me whole. And God, I've got my spiritual shoes on. I got my spiritual Nikes on, my Vans, my Birkenstocks, right? I am ready to apply this to my life. I'm anticipating your deliverance in my life because your sacrifice is that good. And maybe you haven't come to that place of really applying the blood of Jesus to your heart and life. You haven't yet trusted Jesus for salvation. You've been around the message of Christ. You've heard it talked about, but you haven't made it personal. And tonight, believe. Tonight, turn from sin and trust Christ and say, Jesus, I believe your blood was shed for me. And would you forgive me and be the Lord of my life? And Jesus is gonna come and, and he's going to save you. So we settle ourselves, we anchor ourselves into this message of Jesus being the, Christ, the Passover lamb. And also I think we hopefully learn from Pharaoh's experience of hardening our heart before the Lord. Proverbs tells us to keep the heart because out of it flows the issues of life. That means pay attention to our heart condition, our spiritual heart condition. Don't, don't harden our hearts before the Lord. When we see the kind of devastation that's happening in relationships and de devastation that's happening in families, well, how did that happen? Because there's a hardness of heart, right? 
And I think we all know the capacity of our own heart. It can get extremely hard if we're not careful. And say, Lord, I don't want to harden my heart against you. And in communion, God, would you soften my heart? Would you make my heart soft? Maybe there's things that are starting to build up in our heart and our life where we're starting to get hard, right? And we all know what that may be for us. And to just talk that over with the Lord and say, God, would you make my heart soft? And one of the amazing things about the Passover lamb, Jesus, is he's able to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. He's able to take a part of me that's died and say, I'm ready to bring life into that place. So let's stand and let's pray and we'll enter into communion tonight. Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for being the lamb, the suffering servant that went to the cross to die for our sins. We thank you that by faith, as we have applied your blood to our lives, that judgment has passed over, that we're not an object of your judgment, but we've received your grace. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we take communion, we want to do it in anticipation and faith that you're going to move in our lives. Lord, would you show us areas of our hearts that are hard? So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.